Friends, welcome to Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Word on Fire is an apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization, using media both old and new to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. Today, we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each one of us. Peace be with you. Friends, our first reading for this weekend is of pivotal significance in the Bible because it lays out some of the fundamentals of human anthropology. Who are we? And specifically, human anthropology in regard to marriage. So it's a passage of, as I say, pivotal importance. So it behooves us to take a careful and attentive walk through this uh, passage. It's from the second chapter of the book of Genesis. So those opening chapters of Genesis are always so important. Here's the first line now from our reading. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, say what you want about the biblical view of the human being, but the one thing you can't say is that it's individualistic. The focus in the Bible is not, as it is in the founding text of modernity, for example, on the individual person and his rights. I mean, we think that way. And we we take it in with our mother's milk, I mean, this idea that the individual and defending his rights, but that's just not the biblical view. Rather, the Bible focuses on the human being as irreducibly social. It's not good for the man to be alone. So, I mean, connectivity, community, reaching out to the other is just key in the Bible. You know, the perspective is on display in classical philosophy, too. So, I mean, go behind, go before the the modern, pre-modern divide. And you'll see this is one of the major points of of demarcation. So Aristotle, the great philosopher, famously defined the human being as the zoon politikon, right? It's Greek for the political animal. Now, we'll take that and mean, oh yeah, someone that's always, he'll work in the angles and I'm a political animal. But see, what he means literally, politikon, is someone who's at home in the polis. The polis means the city. And again, for the Greeks, don't think of, you know, Chicago or L.A. or or Paris, some big metropolis, metropolis, by the way. But think of, like we'd say, a little town, but a place of of intimate community. Well, the human being is the zoon politikon. He's meant to live in this kind of tightly ordered community. Think, too, this is interesting. Stay with Aristotle for a minute. His equally famous characterization of man as the rational animal has an entirely social implication because the Greek used there is zoon logikon. So our word logic comes from that, right? But logikon literally means tongue. It means the animal with speech, the zoon logikon. So other animals can groan and they can bark and they can whinny and all this, but they're not speaking, right? Well, to speak implies a hearer. You don't, I mean, we do talk to ourselves, but that's an anomaly. To speak is to communicate with somebody else. So both zoon politikon and zoon logikon 
have a social implication. It's not good for the man to be alone. That's very basic in the classical and biblical view. Okay. Well, in accord with that truth, God, we hear in the great poetry of Genesis, endeavors to make a partner for Adam. And beautifully, he parades first this whole series of animals before him, and Adam names them, and that's, that's a very important move. Adam signals thereby his lordship over them. Right? He names the animals in a kind of lordly way. The Bible has no time for a philosophy that would render humans and other animals co-equal. I mean, so th- that's what strike the biblical people as weird, anomalous. At the same time, and stay with that image of Adam naming the animals in this gentle manner, it envisions a world in which human beings act as the good stewards of the non-human creation. Right? It's a beautiful balance there to me. It's not a silly, you know, everyone's co-equal, all animals and human beings are co-equal. But it's not a, a perspective of domination, you know, that animals just exist for us to take advantage of. Well, no, we're the stewards of the non-human creation. Also, I love this in the church fathers, that Adam, as he names the animals, is literally cataloging them. And that word, our English word catalog, is from the Greek, katalogon, right? According to the word. is What is Adam doing here? But he's naming them according to the intrinsic intelligibility in them. Fancy way of saying he's noticing patterns of structure, order, and meaning in the animals. And on that basis, he names them. He catalogs them. Well, see, the church fathers saw this, therefore, as evocative of all of philosophy and science, this this marvelous way in which we human beings show our mastery over nature, again, not, not in a domineering way, but we are able to catalog the world. We name it according to its intrinsic logos. Beautiful. I mean, these, this very textured view of, of who the human being is, by nature social, in relation to the, the animals in this, in this mastering but non-domineering way, etc. Okay. But we hear that none of these animals, whom Adam catalogs, would qualify as a suitable partner. How come? It's because in his rationality and his capacity for love, think of intellect and will, the two fundamental, our tradition would say, the signs that were made in the image and likeness of God, right? So in his rationality and his capacity for love, Adam needs someone co-equal, someone able to look back at him with understanding, to speak to him meaningfully, to share his life, right? That's what he needs. No matter how intelligent, intuitive, and compassionate a dog is, and, you know, I I had a dog when I was a kid. I love dogs. And there is a kind of intelligence and, and even a kind of, I'd say, compassion you can pick up in a dog. But nevertheless, we know the dog is never our soulmate. Right? It's never the other that we, we cry out to. And so we hear, again in the beautiful symbolic language of Genesis, how God put the man into a deep sleep and drew out a rib from which he fashioned Eve. Now I know by our sensibilities, we're probably right away going to jump on that and say, well, there's the Bible again showing you know, man's superiority to women. 
But see, the point of that suggestion is, is not to signal Eve's inferiority, just the contrary. Rather, her co-equality with Adam. That's the idea of, of taking the rib from Adam. As he himself says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Aristotle said that we can be friends only with someone who's, who's our equal. I see why, because only an equal can really meet our gaze and engage our minds and wills fully. It's like, you know, think of a, for Aristotle, an adult can't really be friends with a child. It doesn't mean you're going to be abusive to the child. It just means that you're not going to be a friend because you can't meet in a child an equal, you know. That's what we long for from the depth of our soul. And so this relationship between a man and a woman is meant to be the deepest kind of friendship, a sharing of life at all levels. Now beautifully, the next insight. That is why a man leaves his mother and father and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one flesh. This mutuality, this complementarity, this play of co-equal friendship reaches its culmination in the sexual act. And I would say, friends, I mean, is there any better description of the sexual act anywhere in the literature of the world than that provocative line, and the two of them become one flesh? Vivid, concrete, clear. But don't forget something. In a Jewish context, flesh is not opposed to spirit or soul, as though we're just talking about a purely sort of carnal reality. Rather, flesh, for, for the biblical Jews, carries the sense of the whole person. Hence, sexual union is meant at its best, at its most authentic, to be a union at all levels. It's not good for the man to be alone. He needs a soulmate, a partner to share life. Well, the, the two of them becoming one flesh is evocative of this friendship, this intimacy now fully attained. So, you know, I would put this in the language of our spiritual tradition. A husband says to his wife, my life is no longer about me, it's about you and the children that we will have. And the wife says the same thing to her husband, my life is not mine anymore, it belongs to you and our children. There it is, everybody, there's the genesis, that beautifully textured uh, presentation. And now just a quick look at the Gospels. This is the very text that Jesus, the Son of God, cites in our Gospel when questioned about marriage and divorce. It's very important now. Son of God, not just one philosopher among many. Son of God cites this text. We might expect him perhaps to soften the teaching or relativize it, but instead he intensifies it. So when asked about divorce, well, you know, let's find some, some way around this thing. No, he intensifies it. Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. That's the Lord. Not only an intensification of the prohibition, but the clear introduction of what I've called the transcendent third. The husband and wife who become one flesh are brought together not just by their mutual attraction, but by God. See, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. Their union is ingredient in God's purpose. And that's why it cannot be undone. 
See, God does not go back on his word. If it's simply a matter of, oh, two human beings becoming attracted and falling in love, well, that can, I guess, in principle, be undone. But if God's involved, this exists for God's purposes. Well, God's word can't uh, go back on itself. Now, to fill out the picture, I'll close with this. We find at the end of the gospel passage that lovely account of Jesus with the children. At a time, mind you, when children had absolutely no social status. There was no romanticization of childhood in the ancient world as we found in the modern period. At a time when they weren't you know, romanticized or given special status, Jesus reaches out to the children when the disciples want to distance them. Let the children come to me. Do not prevent them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Fertility, fecundity, life-giving are essential to the biblical vision. This is a very interesting thing, everybody. And take a look as you go through your Old Testament especially. Whenever Israel is in right relation to God, it becomes fertile. You know, that command at key moments in the Old Testament, go forth and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. That's a sign always of Israel's life, its vitality, its groundedness in God. And so a rightly ordered friendship of marriage comes to rich expression in the bringing forth of children. You know, uh, we could go on and on, of course, about marriage, but in many ways, I think all the elements that make up this distinctively Christian view of marriage are on display in these two great readings. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.